Hey, everybody. This is Chris. This is Kara. And we are both illin. Oh, my gosh. There's so much phlegm right now, Chris. Uh, yeah, no, I feel you. I am hopped up on pseudoephedrine, but the, the thing about pseudoephedrine and Claritin D for me is that when I'm not super ill, it jacks me up, and it's like a biohack. It gives me a little bump in the day. And when I am really sick, it just keeps me from, I guess, being as phlegmatic as you, but I just want to take a nap all the time. So that's where I am. You're on pseudoephedrine and Claritin-D right now? Well, there's pseudoephedrine in Claritin-D. That's oh, the D. I, I was imagining you were taking Claritin-D and Sudafed, and that sounds like a recipe for exploding your heart. Oh, no. Sudafed would just, like, just, just knock me out. <laughs> yeah, I've decided to nuke this cold, and I'm taking Mucinex right now. Right on. It's not putting a dent in the, uh, in the amount of gross that my body is currently producing. It's impressive. Well, so you're, it looks like you're hanging out at home. So I just wanted to, I thought we'd start off with the, our usual chit chat. And I, I started this new thing in my human adaptability class. Well, I do it in classes here and there. And in my human adaptability class, every week, I asked the students, I sort of stole this from another podcast, but changed the wording. I asked the students what's blown their mind or what's on their mind this week. And we go through the list of students and it gives us a good sense of sort of it's really nice to hear what the students are thinking about or what podcasts they're listening to or what tv shows or what factoid from a class has really struck them so Kara what's blowing your mind this week so two things one this will date the podcast as we're all watching hurricane florence move closer and closer to the coast and as we see friends and family making crazy contingency plans that have had to adjust as they've adjusted the path and everything else of the hurricane i don't know it's interesting to watch when you have this much warning to see what responses are to this and how universities are closing down and shutting off power ahead of time and then you think about the science that happens at these universities and what their contingency plans are when they rely on power to keep samples preserved this whole time. So that's the sad, depressing thing that's currently on my mind. But the fun thing is I've started a new sci-fi series. Oh, yeah? Uh, reading, book reading. Uh, the Expanse, which is by a pseudonym, James Corey, but there's actually two authors who are writing this series. And I believe it's actually now a show. But I'm on book three, and they're like, crazy fast and engrossing reads and i highly recommend them to everybody sweet sweet i think seven books are out and there's going to be a total of nine when it's said and done hmm. cool what about you well so also to date the recording of this yesterday was 9 11 and in our class the thing that was on my mind is still on my mind which was 9 11 so as i watched all the memorials that morning you know, I thought of my own experience in New York. I was there. I was an undergrad at Brooklyn College at 9-11 and remember the ash falling on my car and just all the stories. And what I ended up doing yesterday was pulling some of the literature on 9-11 and human biology and the, the changing birth weights. There, there was a cohort of kids born after 9-11 who were low birth weight. So I wanted to connect that to some of the work Larry Shell's done on pollution and, and environmental toxicants, because one of our readings was from him. And I realized 
my kids are in that cohort. My kids were born in 2003. So they were born in that period where they collected the, the data. And I, my kids were low birth weight because they were triplets, they were preemies, but it just sort of blew my mind thinking about the context of all of that. Yeah, that's, it's a heavy week, heavy news week. Yeah, there were a lot, a lot of heavy things that we talked about. But, you know, as I said to the students, it's good. We need to, we need to process this stuff. We need, to, we need to talk about it. We need to not pretend that we just go to class and talk about theory and that it's somehow not related to our everyday lives. So we ended up segueing into the hip-hop guy who just OD'd. What was his name? Mac Miller. Mac Miller, right? Mac Miller, yeah. My kids were fans of his and several of the students were touched by that and that reminded me of all the many people still alive who need help in my own family and those who passed and when I was their age Kurt Cobain's death and yeah it was a heavy day. I feel like every generation has that that celebrity that that passes away all too soon and in some you know drastic and dramatic fashion that brings out these conversations which is, you know, traumatic as they are, these are conversations that need to be had. So yeah, good on bringing it up in class. But also you heard our guest's voice there answering your question earlier. So maybe we should introduce him. Oh, yeah. So sitting right behind me is Max J. Stein, very soon to be Dr. Max J. Stein. So exciting. Or Dr. Max J. Crawford. I don't know. Are you taking your <laughs> wife's name? No. He's newly married. We discussed that. He's newly minted PhD. Max is a doctoral candidate, as I say, just defended his dissertation uh, here at the University of Alabama. I've been working with Max since he got here. He did his master's and his PhD here. Max and I have co-authored three papers together now. Um, We've worked in the field together. We've worked in my lab together. I'm on his dissertation committee, and I'm really proud to say that he just knocked his defense out of the park, and, and I read his every single word of his entire dissertation, and he did a, a superb job. So I invited him onto the pod to talk about it. No bias or pride at all. Thank you for having well, me. Uh, yeah, we're glad to have you on. We might as well ask you the same question, I guess, the way we started. What things have got you kind of excited this week or thinking this week might be the better term? Oh, thinking this week. Well, I've been filling out a lot of job apps. <laughs> that definitely keeps you thinking about a lot of different things based on what they ask at a particular institution. So I've been crafting my teaching statement, my diversity statement, my research statement, and my cover letters. And I've had some practice with this, but it gets to the point when you're actually teaching classes, you've actually completed the dissertation where you realize what you're supposed to write and you realize what you can write. So what I've been doing the past week is marveling at what I can now write now that I've completed my dissertation. Nice. How does that feel? Good. (laughs) (laughs) Freeing. I I guess you kind of jumped into something we were going to ask you about anyway, but closer to the end. So as Chris said, you have defended, finished up your PhD. You just got married and you're now on the job market. What kind of advice or words of wisdom do you have for grad students who might be approaching, you know, similar milestones and challenges? It's a long journey to get to this point. And, and I realize the journey is, has really only begun. I realize there's a lot ahead of me. And I guess I could only suggest that students really do what they want, do what makes them happy. And for a lot of students, that means going through and getting the PhD. And for me, there really wasn't a question. I, I love anthropology. It, it makes me happy. And 
if there's graduate students just starting out, you know, want to know what's the secret, just love what you do. And I mean, it will always feel like work, but if you are truly pursuing something that interests you, you, there's no question that you'll succeed. It's just a matter of putting in that work and realizing that you're good enough to do it. So that's the advice that I would offer. I, I'd also say get a little more sleep than, than I did, but that's easier said than done. Yeah, good luck with that. All levels. <laughs> so we started off uh, with a little bit of the you're an anthropologist bit, which pretty much describes everybody that we have on the pod. So let's, let's color you in a little bit. Okay. Um, we want to start listeners off, as we did, not just with a sense of what you've been thinking about this week, but something personal. So outside of academic stuff, have you been, do you have any shows that you've been watching or books that you've been reading or anything like that? Do you have any recreational activities that you engage in? So I used to love watching Netflix shows and I am just getting back into that. The only thing I'm watching right now is, is probably John Oliver because it's, it's topical and you know, you can watch a single episode independent of other ones. I've also been reading a lot of, a lot of news, Washington Post, New York Times, Newsweek, just I haven't had a chance to actually sit down and do that. So that's actually been really nice. Something a little different than what I've been reading for the past eight years or so. And I'm also reading uh, 100 Years of Solitude mm. in Spanish because I've never read it in Spanish and it's taking a fairly long time. It's enjoyable, mm. but you know, you'll spend 20 minutes on, on a single sentence mm. seeing how the translation, because you have two copies with you and you have a Spanish copy and English copy say, Oh, how did they get that from that? Hmm. And so that's probably my recreational reading. Other than that, I uh, make sure to go to the gym as often as I can <laughs> now that I'm not sitting down and, and writing all the time. I, I notice you don't sit when you're in your office. You, I don't. you ergonomically, sensitively stand and, and work at your laptop at a bookshelf there. Oh, that's just simply because I want to sleep without pain in the night. <laughs> so, <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't sit anymore. I, I don't find it to be adaptive. There's a lot of stuff on that, but that also reminded me, the first novel I attempted to read in Spanish was Harry Potter. Oh, okay. And like trying to see the translations of the magical words and things like that from you know, English into Spanish, you're exactly right. You could be spending 20 minutes on one or two sentences trying to figure it out. But I was not fortunate enough to have an English copy with me <laughs> when I tried to read it. But, you know, like a lot of people, I had read those books over and over and mm -hmm. over in English. So I had a, a decent basis to go off of. But that's an interesting challenge. Good on you. Thank you. You always start with the English version or the one you're familiar with and then say, okay, let's, let's take on the challenge. But no, always go make things as hard for yourself as possible. That's my motto. No, I'm joking. That's what ends up happening. That's what ends up happening. <laughs> yeah. So we're also interested in your anthropology origin story. So how'd you, how'd you come to anthropology and why, why'd you stick with it all the way to the PhD? What do you think you're going to get something out of this life? I remember distinctly. Make sure you drop my name a lot. Okay. No, I'm kidding. Now this goes way back. This goes way back to yesteryear. I think this was the fall of 05 and I was taking an anthropology course a psychology course and a sociology course. And I knew that I wanted to do something within the social sciences. I didn't realize how much that would connect back to the natural sciences as well as the humanities. And I thought psychology was great. Sociology was interesting, but something about anthropology, maybe it was the fieldwork component. Maybe it was the fact that they try to get you to think outside the box, but I loved it. And it only took me a semester to declare my major. And I, knew that I wanted to do anthropology. And then I got my bachelor's and 
I realized that you have to typically go beyond if you want to do something professional in, in this, in this industry. Mm-hmm. So I knew a master's degree was the next step. And that's, that's what led me to Alabama. I, I particularly like medical anthropology. And um, it was one of the classes I had taken in undergrad. And it just seemed like the topic that most schools were focusing on because health is something that is so universally human. You know, everyone gets sick and being able to study that is just something that it was almost like a calling for me. Everything else, it seems like it happened in a blur, but I came to Alabama and my interests matched with several of the faculty. I said yes to all the opportunities that were offered and tried as hard as I could to get the ones that weren't. And it's just, it's never let me down. I absolutely love anthropology and it's what gets you through the PhD because there's times you're thinking, what am I, this has been, this is year six now, you know, what am I doing here? But you realize once you complete it, why you stick with it. Well, that's a compelling story. One of the things that I hear in there is something that catches my ear from a lot of people and worries me, which was this idea that it's interesting, but what can you do with it besides go on to a master's degree? My own children, for instance, argued with me that they didn't see any reason to take the cultural anthropology course they can take through UA's early college and high school because they weren't planning to become anthropologists. And of course, my head exploded. And I talked one of them into taking the course and had to explain to them that anthropology is good for everyday life. But this isn't on our, our script. But do you think that we have work to do to change that? I mean, do you think really that it's only valuable if you're going to go into academia? Well, I don't think it's only valuable if you're going to, going to go into academia. I mean, anthropology is such a holistic science that, you know, it, it, it can apply to, to every aspect of any career path, any piece of knowledge. For me, I knew I wanted to do anthropology as a career. And as far as becoming the professional, I knew it would take to be able to teach and do research. For me, there was no other option but the master's program. But there are so many practical applications for anthropological knowledge. And just taking an anthropological perspective, and especially getting students when they're freshmen, when they're taking their intro-level courses, when they're still forming opinions about what they want to do with their careers. And like you mentioned, Chris, that, that starts even before college. The fact that students in high school are, have access to that type of knowledge, it really does paint a picture of how broad anthropology is and how much it can be used in any sort of career path. I mean, I have international business majors who talk about what type of perspective you can gain from looking at culture from a more anthropological way, understanding how culture is all-encompassing and how it shapes biology, how it shapes the way we behave, how it shapes the way we dress ourselves and talk. Cool. Uh, To add on to that, Chris, I think we do actually have a lot more work to do to make it very clear and obvious how relevant anthropology is to, like Max said, every single field of study there is. It's becoming... I think a more common theme these days among undergrads that they don't want to take any extra courses that don't seem obviously and completely and utterly applicable to their desired goal and desired career. So in my department, we have a human biology major, which is services like all pre-allied health science folks. And you have to be very explicit about these connections with anthropology and bring it back to the human aspect of medicine and not just the hardcore science of it because they don't see it that way initially 
And once you make those connections with anthropology, you see it click and you see that they start realizing how, like Max said, it's holistic and it it's all comes together in a package. You can't have one without the other. And I think we need to be better about being vocal uh, with other departments and other majors to get that out there. For sure. Yeah, totally agree. So I'm curious as to how Max has done that in his own work. We actually heard a little bit about Max's research a few episodes ago when we interviewed Kathy Oates and Hannah Smith. But Max, why don't you tell us about how you came to be doing the work that you did in Peru, right? Mm -hmm. What was your dissertation called? Dynamic Migration Network in Northern Peru. Culture, social networks, and health. Okay. So what was your research objective in that? My research objective was to look at the health of rural to urban migrants in Peru. These are people who are living in a farming community who basically have no other option but to try to get by farming or go to the city and try to make it there. And my question was, what motivates these people to do that? And how does it affect their health? And I was particularly interested how social networks and particularly their their native social system facilitated this process does someone who is more integrated or more embedded within their network in some ways better off and the the way i got to this question was i was originally looking to study in the mountains in this small farming community where my advisor kathy Oates had had studied about 25 years ago but we found that most of the people had left the hamlet and there was this huge diaspora and most of the people about a third of the original population that she studied in 1988 lived on the coast had families on the coast and it sparked this question for me is what is pushing them to the coast what's pulling them to the coast and how do their social relations facilitate this process cool so your work makes some really unique connections between bill dressler's work who is also here in the department Bill's known for his development and implementation of the cultural consonance approach in theory. And then you mentioned using a social network approach. So what did you contribute? What, what, what did you do that's so unique and novel? And does it say anything that adds to our knowledge of human biology? Well, the crux of Bill Dresser's approach is that it links the group knowledge that we call culture to individual behavior and in particular individual health, you know, and it states that people who are not able to approximate that proverbial, what it takes to be successful have poorer health outcomes. And when I went to look at the migration literature, I found that there were also a number of disputes about whether we should focus on the individual or whether we should focus on the group. Is migration the aggregate outcome of individual decisions? Is migration a top-down thing that pushes whole communities into migration? And what I found was a very similar answer to what Dressler had proposed it, that links the individual to the aggregate, and the answer was networks. Social networks connect origin and destination communities. We tend to think of these as separate. We think of rural and urban, but they're interconnected. They're connected by resources, information, and people. And all of these resources transmit between communities. And I thought that was so interesting how they fit together. And it really made me want to look at both the cultural as well as the social aspects that shape migration. So in a way, I implemented social network analysis 
to achieve the same goal that Dressler's Cultural Consonance does, linking individual motivations to the collective body and everything in between, whether it's social relations or cultural knowledge. So he always tends to look at, at health outcomes, psychological mm-hmm. or cardiovascular. Did you look at anything like that? So the established result is that blood pressure and psychological distress are robust measures of uh, individual health outcomes, mm-hmm. especially when you're dealing with a population you might hypothesize to be under a certain level of stress. And migrants and refugee populations completely fit the mold for mm. that. So what I did was I tried to use blood pressure and I used psychological distress scales. I used a Center for Epidemiologic Studies depression scale, Cohen's 14-item perceived stress scale, as well as what is called a health locus of control scale. And mm. it, it's meant to try to see whether people see their locus of control within themselves internally or whether they feel other people or other forces control their health outcomes. Mm. And the reason I say that I tried to use blood pressure is because blood pressure is a very finicky measure to implement in the field. And I was doing so many other things that there just wasn't enough time to get four different measures. But the psychological scales were extremely telling as far as the results. And they replicate for cultural consonants those same results that people who are less culturally successful. And by culturally successful, we're talking about shared migration goals and Mm. shared lifestyle aspirations generally have a higher level of distress. And that's what we found with the psychological surveys. And so what can it contribute to our understanding? I think it contributes immense knowledge to our study of the biological stress process and how social and cultural factors actually influence biological human health, things that you would think are not shaped by culture, which are very much structured by cultural and social factors. So it seems that uh, one part of your work kind of picked out women as behaving and reacting differently, where they seem to have more of the cultural knowledge, but they seemed worse off perhaps biologically, whether through the psychological stressors or the blood pressure. Would you be willing to kind of go into that and what you think is going on with that particular association? Yeah, absolutely. So when I looked at cultural knowledge, I looked at this very broad model, this universal model among this group, which the group are from a small hamlet called Chugurpampa. And so when I refer to them, I usually call them Chugurpampans. But it was this cultural model of Chugurpampan success that included migration goals and it included lifestyle aspirations. So you can imagine that there were a lot of economic elements to this model. And so the greatest level of success within this model uh, had to do with becoming a professional, having a job, having a a business, uh, having stability in your life versus some of the more basic subsistence-based need to survive, need a little cash to get by, need food for your family. And what I found was that women in particular were least likely to approximate this shared model, but they were most knowledgeable in the model. And what I proposed, because the most interesting part is that their psychological distress was a lot lower in comparison to men, consonant men. And what I found was that for the most part, women in that position, they fulfill a cultural position called ama de casa, which translates to housewife, but it's way more meaningful than that. It's basically the soul of the house. And so 
a lot of the women who come to the coast aren't there to realize their own goals. They're there to help family members realize household goals. So you can see the way that this approach sort of integrates the individual with the household, with the community approach. And so within that, I feel like there would be other more specific models. If I were to return and look at a model of the ideal ama de casa, what does it mean to be a good ama de casa? I imagine that there would be more of that classic relationship with consonants where people who are less consonant with the model have greater psychological distress. So I feel if I were to go back and do that, you would find something similar among women, perhaps among people who own businesses, particularly men. But what is also surprising is that among the women who were most consonant in the model, most of them were professionals, whereas most of the successful men were business persons. And what it's led me to believe is that women in some ways are finding an additional niche an additional niche in the migration process. You know, it used to be that women, and it's still largely to some extent, women are supporting their family members, but there also is an, a, an increasingly available domain where they're starting to inhabit and they're starting to get these professional careers and these professional positions. They're lawyers and accountants and doctors and teachers. And these are the professionals that everyone desires to be. And so I just thought it was interesting how the gender roles do change, but they are still complementary in many ways. So it sounds like a, a trade-off. There's almost a conscious trade-off based on what they know mm -hmm. to be a model of success or to be what is successful. They're trading it off for long-term gains for their family down, right. down the road. Yeah. No doubt that the professional route is, is a lucrative one, wow. but not one that they themselves want for their own lives. Very cool. So I guess the big question then, and might be a good way to wrap it up, say you get the dream job and everything's exciting. Uh, where is your research taking you next? What do you see the next step of your research program as? Well, I never want to leave Peru. Um, I, I love it. I've, I've made relationships down there that I can only hope will be lifelong. What's very interesting about this migration event is that it's, it represents internal migration. It happens within a country. Most of the migration literature that you'll see is based on transnational migration or migration across borders. But the question is, those borders are not natural borders. They're culturally shaped borders. And it's pretty well known that internal migration tends to lead to transnational migration. And in my population, you can see this start to happen. There's some people who have moved to Spain, some have moved to Chile, and some have even moved to the United States. These are very small groups of people, but they're what we might call pioneer migrants. And so the next step is to look at the connections between internal and transnational migration and how culture facilitates that process. Because like I said, people study either internal or transnational for the most part, but there's very little communication between the two camps. So that would definitely be among many, one of the next step forward. Cool. Well, thanks for being on the pod today, Max. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you, Max. And of course, best of luck on the job market. We know I that appreciate a, it. That's a tough thing to go through. We've all been there. I'm excited. How can people find out more about you and your work? Where can they find you on the interwebs? Uh, if you go to researchgate.com, you can look up my academic profile. I have all of my uh, publications on there. Uh, it's also easy to contact me through there. You can check out my department webpage, or if you'd like to reach out to me by email, my uh, 
Email is maxjstein, M-A-X-J-S-T-E-I-N, at gmail.com. And we have been the Sausage of Science for the Human Biology Association. I'm Chris. You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter. And I have been Kara, despite my schnorfling and schnuffling. And you can find me at Kara Akabak on Twitter. Right on. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening.